Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. It is Monday, the 8th of March, 2021. And today's show is all going to be focused on regenerative agriculture, a term that I'm sure a lot of you have heard before, but possibly don't fully understand. Hopefully, after today's show, many of your questions will have been answered. And to do that, we have teamed up with Epic Provisions for this episode, who have just launched their beef barbacoa-inspired bar, which is the first bar to carry the Savory Institute's land-to-market ecological outcome verification seal. Essentially what that means is that the, the beef in that product was raised using regenerative farming practices that improve soil health, biodiversity, and ecosystem function. Uh, to get to grips with all of this and, and what that means, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Steve Rosenzweig, who is the senior soil scientist at General Mills. Uh, he leads uh, the research and outreach program to support farmers improving soil health. This seeks to enable transitions to regenerative farming systems within General Mills agricultural sourcing regions and to measure the impacts on soil health, greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity and farmer economic resilience. And Epic are one of the companies that sit inside the General Mills portfolio. Uh, so we're going to be able to tie in real-life products that are going to market with the, the science behind it and why it's important. If you enjoy this conversation, I encourage you to head over to modernhuntsman.com where you'll find a recent article posted called Talk Dirty. It was written by Katie Marchetti. It's an interview with Steve, uh, also in, in partnership with Epic Provisions. And there's some aspects in there that are, that are possibly not covered in this podcast. I will stick the link to that article in the show notes. And with all of that said, please welcome Steve Rosenswag to the podcast. Stephen, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you on to talk about a topic which has really come to the, the, the forefront of people's minds in you know the last year to two years. And there's this idea about regenerative agriculture. I think a great way to start this conversation would really be to explain what on earth do we mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's not one universal definition, but I can share how we've been talking about it at General Mills um, and how we've come to use it in the context of our commitment to advance regenerative ag on a million acres. Um, so, so we define regenerative ag as a holistic principles-based approach to farming and ranching that seeks to strengthen ecosystems and communities. Um, and so really, so it's, it's, a, it's an approach to farming that's based on principles. And so there's six principles of agricultural management, these things that farmers and ranchers can do on their farms, um, any farmer, any rancher, anywhere, um, to improve the health of this ecosystem that produces all this food. Um, and those, so, you know, those principles are, are universal. So any farmer anywhere can use them, organic or conventional. Um, and it really helps to, you know, reverse negative trends that we see globally in soil degradation, biodiversity loss, water quality uh, degradation, um, you know, farmer economic trends, uh, climate change. You know, there's all of these massive issues that are facing the agricultural sector. And when these principles can come together in the system, they really help to address all of those issues that we face. And so the other, the other half of the definition as we use it, so it's about principles, but it's also about outcomes. 
And so General Mills would consider a farm regenerative if it's improving soil health, improving biodiversity, water quality or quantity, you know, reducing the amount of water that's needed, improving the farmer economic resilience, and also mitigating climate change. So, you know, we, we have this outcome-based approach to regenerative agriculture. So it's, it, you know, it, it's hard to, to see, um, you know, hard to say that one farm is regenerative and another isn't, but we would, we would classify a farm regenerative if it's improving those outcomes, a sign that this ecosystem and this farm business and community uh, is regenerating and getting better. Okay, you've identified sort of two major themes there in my mind. One is, and I, and I think that the, the first one I'm about to mention is the one that most people's mind will shift to when when they hear regenerative agriculture, and that is for the purpose of um, capturing carbon or taking carbon out of the carbon cycle as part of climate change mitigation. And the second major theme is this uh, enhancement of a system to be more sympathetic to the biodiversity around these landscapes, which we have altered for livestock or um, planting arable crops. Before we maybe take a dive into the kind of shifts in agricultural practices which allow both of those themes to be addressed. Can you give me some ideas of kind of uh, historical and current um, agricultural practices that are not necessarily looking at this more regenerative approach and how those sort of severely impact the environment, both in terms of climate change and their impacts to, to biodiversity and ecosystem health? Sure. Yeah. So one thing to note is there's, you know, it's, we talk about principles because one of the principles is actually understand context. And so there's, there's not necessarily one practice that is implemented everywhere. And it always has a negative detrimental effect, or it always has a regenerative effect. And so, um, so it's kind of, you got to zoom into a particular place, a particular system, a particular context of this ecosystem. And that's really the context in which you can understand if what the farmer is actually doing is being regenerative or degenerative. And that's one of the things that makes it hard to have this kind of universal definition, this broad brush approach. But um, generally, kind of, you know, the things that that we know have contributed to degradation of ecosystems broadly is, is things like tillage, where farmers will, um, you know, they have big plows or, you know, these tillage implements, these, it can be like discs or plows that, they drag through the field and turn over the soil, um, you know, basically the preparing it for planting. So getting that fluffy surface and burying all the crop residue from the previous year's crop underneath the soil surface, you have this nice clean surface to plant into. Um, it, you know, it has all these benefits and that's why farmers do it, you know, for um, especially here in these Northern climates, I'm in Minnesota um, and, and having that black soil exposed to the sun really helps it warm up in the spring and dry out and helps these farmers get into plant earlier. But, you know, when you have that bare soil, it is exposed to wind and rain, these forces that can take the soil off of the field and into waterways or into the air, um, places where we don't want it. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's it's really about kind of balancing, you know, the, the everyday logistics and, and agronomics of this farm system with the long-term sustainability and health and resilience of, of the farm itself. So, so tillage is a good example of that one that has these negative trade-offs. Um, and one of the principles of regenerative ag is to reduce disturbance. 
So, you know, that includes both physical disturbance like tillage, but also chemical disturbance. And so things like pesticides, you know, obviously have a negative impact on the biodiversity. Um, You know, if you think about insects that are broadly really um, harmed when, when there's broad use of, of pesticides, specifically like neonicotinoids that are, that are used um, in things like seed treatments and things. So they've been banned in a lot of countries now, haven't they? Um, I believe in in Europe they're they're taking a yeah. more aggressive stance, but in, they've uh, banned them across yeah. Europe. In a, I, I yeah. think Europe wide in the European Union. But uh, actually, there was a, an article just out the other day in, in while well, the UK has now left Europe, but, but we are not we are not carrying that piece of regulation over, as far as I understand, as particularly harmful to pollinators. Yeah, I mean, and you know, one of the things about regenerative ag is you know if you want to realize a benefit to biodiversity. Um, you know, reducing pesticide use is a good place to start, but it's not the only thing that needs to be done. So, you know, if you think about, um, so going back to tillage, right? So a lot of these insects are ground nesting. So when you till, you're actually disrupting the place where they live. Um, So it's not just about getting rid of, you know, or reducing the amount of pesticides that are out there, but you have to have all these other things in place as well. You know, maximizing diversity on the farm, having a living root in the ground year round. Those are two other principles and both of those things are needed if you're going to have a healthy biological community because they need a place to eat, they need a place to sleep, they need uh, you know lots of different resources out there. They need a healthy um, you know if they're a predator insect, they need prey to eat. Um, and so you know you, the the whole system has to come into balance. And that's where th- this regenerative approach it's so important to have a holistic understanding of these systems because it's never just about one thing. It's not just about eliminating one certain thing. Or, or, you know, making one tiny change to a farm system and all of a sudden you have all these benefits. It's really about seeing the system as a whole and integrating all six of these principles together. And that's how you realize these emergent benefits to soil, to biodiversity, to water, to climate, to economics of the system. Um, and that's, that's, it's tough because if it was just about one thing, it'd be so much easier to work on. Um, but, you know, that's part of the challenge. We have to, we have to communicate these nuanced concepts, both to farmers and ranchers, but also to consumers and and other people working in the ag space. Um, you know, it, it's a complex, nuanced topic, um, but it's got to be holistic if we're going to have an impact. So, just taking tillage uh, as one example, I'm sure there are some people thinking, "Well, I'm used to seeing the fields around me be plowed up every year because that's how farmers plant their crops for the next year." So, if you're not doing that, what's the alternative? So, you know, plant one of the, so one of the principles of regenerative ag is keep the soil covered. And typically, you know, when you harvest a crop, say wheat, there's all this straw left behind, right? There's tons of what some farmers call trash um, and leaving that straw on the soil surface. So just not tilling it, um, you can actually plant right into that. So that residue, it keeps the soil cool, keeps it moist, um, and with new, you know, there's there's new planting equipment. I mean, it's not so new. It's been around for decades. Farmers have been doing, you know, no-till, well, for a really long time. But, um, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill standard planting equipment you can get now can plant through that residue. Like, there's no need to really have that uh, freshly tilled surface in most cases. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, part of it is, is you know, could require a, a, an investment in new, tech, in new equipment. Um, but I think it also takes an investment in mindset. You know, a lot of farmers will do things 
because that's the way that it's always been done. Um, and you know, I know for myself, it's, it's really hard for me to, to do things differently if I've been doing it the same way for a while. Um, and you know, farmers are the same way. So, um, it's, it's partly just about taking risks, trying something new, um, and, and doing something different. Do you think that really gets to the bottom of why changes haven't happened more, more rapidly when it comes to changing the, the methods of agriculture, being that it's been done this way for such a long time, why change something that, that's kind of working? And I, and I ask that question because it is, even if you don't understand uh, the biology and the chemistry of, of soil science and soil health, it seems quite intuitive to, to, to discuss the idea that soil health is fundamental if you're a farmer for the yield and health of crops. And yet I think it's fairly well known now that we've done a really a very poor job of maintaining soil health around the world. Is it just that we've been able to compensate for that with technology and it seems now that at some point that's going to catch up with us? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of places we... The, the it's not visible. So like soil degradation is not always apparent, especially because it happens slowly over time. And so it's not easy to see, wow, my farm is, is much worse off this year than it was last year because it doesn't happen that quickly. Soil degradation happens over the period of decades. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of cases, um, you know, it's hard to see, it's hard to go back in time and see what this soil was like. It's hard to see how productive and, and incredible this resource can actually was and can actually be again. Um, and so one of the things actually the, so we work a lot with um, coaches, so like regenerative ag coaches that can help, you know, work one-on-one -on -one with farmers in the regions that supply the key ingredients for General Mills products. And one thing these coaches always do is they, they find a patch of grass that's like never been farmed you know it could be in the ditch along the roadside it could be um you know on the margins of the field and you dig that soil up and you see how different it is and then you you pour some water into it and you see how fast the water absorbs it's like a sponge and then you go into the farm itself and the water will sit on top and it's kind of like a it's a lighter color it's gray and chalky and kind of um crumbles really easily. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of making those connections and helping build the farmer's power of observation that can help them make those links because it's, it's not super obvious the link between soil health and yields or soil health and profitability. Um, because, you know, compared to what, right. And the farmers don't have that easy comparison. Um, and so helping, helping to see that, and then also helping to see improvement over time, I think, you know, some farmers will see the soil that they have and say, you know, this field, it is what it is. It's always caused me some issues. It's never been very productive. You know, what are you going to do about it? Um, and I think empowering farmers to see that, no, we, there, we do have this capacity to improve the soil and it will, it can function better over time. Um, and it might take, you know, three to five years to, to really see some of that improvement, but it can be done. Um, and so I think those are some of the links that we have to connect in farmers minds because the cost is is very visible so like you know if you want to put in a cover crop of a plant that you're, you don't intend to harvest so you're not going to get any economic revenue from it but it will add carbon to your soil it will keep it covered to prevent erosion it will feed those microbes and bacteria and fungi and earthworms in the soil making it healthier over time 
you know, the cost of that seed is very real, but all those benefits, you know, the, the earthworms, the microbes, the, the carbon sequestration, none of that stuff is visible or tangible until you, until you actually understand that link. And so to, for us, you know, a lot of what we've been investing in is education and, you know, that coaching to have these really direct connections with farmers to help them see these changes that, that are possible on their farms, because um, it's not as obvious as, as it might seem, um, you know, the, the link between soil health and the economic, um, you know, success of the business. It's interesting. I'm seeing some parallels here. When we look at sort of biodiversity more more as a whole and across the globe, and we look at why it is the case that we've had these large, I mean, you can look at any number of reports from any number of organizations who, who deliver such reports, uh, these large declines in biodiversity around the world. And yet we're increasingly aware of the benefits to people through different ecosystem services that biodiversity allows. And you ask yourself the question, well, why have we allowed this to happen when clearly we get all these amazing benefits from it, but we're depleting a resource? And really a lot of it comes down to this, the simple fact that we have been unable to truly value what that biodiversity is worth to us. And I'm seeing a lot of parallels in this, in the farming world, which is that if they had a a real understanding of the long-term value of doing activities like planting a cover crop with all the peripheral benefits over the longer term, then those decisions, those economic decisions would be much easier to make. They would make more sense in the, the immediate future. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And so actually one thing that we're doing is we're conducting, I've, it might be the largest um, assessment of biodiversity on farms ever uh, with the Ecdysis Foundation in, um, you know, across Canada and North Dakota and in Kansas, uh, you know, in these regions that we source a lot of the ingredients for, for our products. Um, and we're not just assessing like who's there, like what insects are in these farms. And we're doing this with birds as well, um, doing breeding bird surveys to see what types of birds are living in and around these farms and what are they using these different habitats for. Um, but, you know, we're also looking at what, what the insects are doing. So insects provide all sorts of services that are critical for food production. So pollination, predation of pests, residue decomposition, uh, they eat weed seeds to limit farmers' weed pressure. And so actually quantifying those things and, and showing the value of them to farmers, I think is a critical piece of the puzzle because you're right. Like, you know, a farmer, most farmers associate insects or, or birds, even with as pests, right? They, they know the pest insects. They know the, the pest birds, like blackbirds, they eat a lot of their seeds. Um, but you don't see the, you know, for every one pest insect, there's 16 or 1700 beneficial insects. And so bringing those to life and, and actually connecting it to the, the profitability of that farm business um, is essential. And that's, that's a lot of the research that, that we're funding. Interesting. If we turn our attention to specifically the, the, the carbon capture element of this, and the reason I want to do that is because the, the, one of the elements of farming which has really been in the news, it almost feels like on a monthly basis in the last year or two years, is around the the problems specifically with livestock and specifically with beef when it comes to 
the impact on climate change and the impact on the atmosphere and and CO2. What can be done to make that part of the farming system more sympathetic specifically for the impacts on climate change? Because my, my, my feeling, and I think the perception generally is, across most of the reporting in the media, is all beef is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is another place where it's, it's a really hard and complex and nuanced topic. So there's, there's kind of two sides to it. There's, there's the production side and there's the consumption side. And like every, every issue I think we're facing in, in climate change has this, but, but especially so in, in the livestock sector. You know, the global picture is that livestock do produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. They use a lot of water. They contribute to land use change. Um, and, you know, increases in global meat demand do pose a threat to the environment. And, and it is concerning But at the same time, animals integrated into the landscape are an essential component for a healthy, functioning ecosystem. And so we need more of these systems that include regenerative grazing and integrated crop livestock systems. So, you know, there's lots of things ranchers can do um, to improve grazing management. And and a lot of it is, um, you know, if you think about the way bison used to migrate across, you know, the northern plains here in America, um, in huge herds and they would, they would never kind of return back to the same spot that they were, uh, for, for a while. Right. So, so I think if you think about the way grazing currently happens today, um, it could just, you know, the cows are kind of turned out across, you know, large expanses. They can go graze whatever plants they want. And typically they'll kind of pick their favorite plants and graze those continuously. So we call it continuous grazing. Um, and you know, they're not managed in those types of herds that are moved frequently. Um, and so that, that can really contribute to overgrazing of pastures. And so these broad expanses of grasslands, um, the, the health of those can decline over time if the livestock are, are, you know, not managed kind of like the natural system used to function. And so really what, what ranchers are finding they can do is, is, um, you know, clump those, like clump the livestock together in herds and move them more frequently and allow those pastures to rest. So, you know, let those grasses grow back um, fully so that they can recover. And, you know, that's really how you pull carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, if you have a healthy pasture, grasslands can sequester enormous amounts of carbon through their roots by putting it into the soil. Um, and so, so you know, the, some, some of these subtle uh, changes to how, how grazing is done can have huge beneficial impacts on the environment. Um, but there is kind of both sides of this coin. There's, there's the production side and the consumption side. I think, you know, we do globally have to think about reducing meat consumption, but on the production side, we can also do a much better job of how these livestock are managed so that we can actually have regenerative impacts on these ecosystems and for the climate when, when we do produce livestock. Yeah. I I suppose one of the keys here is that there is a lot of or there, there's a huge proportion of the land around the world which we have already altered, and we have, uh, and a lot of it we have already altered for the production of livestock. So it, it is taking a look at that land and managing it with a system that we can get the best benefit out of it in terms of efficiency, but also in terms of how sympathetically we're impacting that landscape so that we can hopefully return it closer to its more natural state which is what you've been explaining by sort of harnessing 
cycles which would have existed in in the past with in a more wild environment less impacted by humans i do wonder though if i'm thinking about the farmers that i know at home they'll be saying well that that's great um we're gonna move cattle around more frequently that sounds like a hell of a lot more work for me am i going to get any benefit out of it even if you were to explain to them well we're gonna we're gonna take carbon out of the atmosphere and it's gonna play a role in mitigating global climate change well that's awesome but I'm not going to see any benefit of that in the next 10 years for me personally, and I'm going to have to do a lot more work. Do we need to get to a place where we have more efficient markets for carbon, as in carbon trading? Or are there other benefits that farmers can see to their bottom line more directly? Yeah, it's an important paradigm shift I think we have to make from how we've traditionally talked about sustainability because, you know, sustainability or conservation, these use, these words we've used in agriculture for a while, they've, you know, they framed it that way that, you know, really all the sustainability stuff, these extra things that you're going to do for the environment, uh, you know, it might be a trade-off with the, you know, the success of your business or, um, you know, it's really just kind of something you're doing out of the goodness of your heart. Um, but really it's not, all of these things that we're talking about, they're not just a, a nice thing to do or a good thing to do for the environment. It's essential to, to the viability of the farm or ranch business. Um, you know, and we can see really near-term, short-term economic gains from a lot of these systems. You know, by increasing, by you know, clumping some of these livestock together, grazing them more evenly across these pastures, you can dramatically in, increase the amount of of food that your land is providing for these animals. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, I was just going back and rereading some of the omnivorous dilemma from Michael Pollan and, you know, he's talking about, you know, grass farming, right? So, so instead of thinking about yourself as a, a cattle farmer, it's really, you're growing grass. And so if you can grow more grass, that's more food for the livestock. That's more livestock you can produce on that same piece of land. So that's like acquiring extra acres without actually having to expand your operation. I love that mindset. Yeah, yeah. It's just, that's just, it's a, it's a shift in the way that you're approaching farming. Totally. And so, you know, and that's some of the mindset shift I think that has to happen within the agricultural sector is it's not just a nice thing to do, but this is really the, the path towards more economically viable operations and ones that improve over time, right? Because like right now, we are on this degrading trajectory um, globally. We're losing soil on sustainable rates, losing biodiversity on sustainable rates. These things that are essential to continue the continued production of food, but we can reverse those trends and actually produce more on the same amount of acreage. Um, if we can focus on regenerating the health of these ecosystems, I think that is just, it has to be core to the, the economic message to farmers and ranchers and um, I think illuminating that and conducting the research to show in all of these different contexts, this regenerative system can be economically superior to the conventional system. And I think that is part of how we can accelerate this movement um, that's already happening in agriculture. Um, so, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of research that we're, we're doing um, ourselves within General Mills and with other partners um, is, is really conducting that economic research to show, you know, year after year, what happens to the economics of this operation as farmers transition to these systems and how much longer does it take to become more profitable 
Um, so yeah, hopefully we can have that kind of information for each kind of farm and ranch community in these key places where we source ingredients, but hopefully, you know, it kind of expands beyond just, you know, it, I think it already is expanding well beyond, you know, just General Mills footprint or even other companies. I think, you know, farmers and ranchers are figuring these things out on their own um, and, and really kind of taking it up. So it's, it's encouraging. Steve, it's probably important, given all the conversation that we've already had, to really take this back to the foundational elements of where regenerative agriculture has come from, and that is really from indigenous knowledge. Uh, what have you been able to learn from the communities that have had, the, had and used this knowledge for many, many generations? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that everything that we're talking about and a lot of the principles on which regenerative ag is based are, are really interpretations of how indigenous communities have managed land for a really long time. Um, and so it's not like we're rediscovering that, um, you know, things like diversity are important or, you know, how uh, bison move and uh, are herded across the landscape. These are things that indigenous communities have learned for a, a very long time. And so recognizing that regenerative ag didn't just come out of nowhere, that really it was, um, you know, it's, it's really based on these, this indigenous wisdom um, is, is important to realize in this current, in this current movement, um, just because, you know, we're talking about it a lot more these days, but, but really indigenous communities have been doing these things and talking about them for, for much longer. So uh, it's important to recognize that. Are there, are there any examples of, uh, like specific knowledge that, you've been able to, to pool and use with modern science? Well, like fire is an easy example to pick on, especially from like 2019 when they were talking about the indigenous knowledge, particularly in Australia, but also here in North America and Northern California, where there had been the, these, these managed controlled burns, which had been stopped historically. And now we're realizing the good that this can be, do for an ecosystem. Yeah, no, I, I think you said that really well. It's like we've, you know, through the dispossession of land and, you know, colonialism, you know, a lot of that knowledge was marginalized about, you know, how, and, and ignored uh, and oppressed. And so I, I think rediscovering uh, some of these things, I, I think we have to also recognize, like we have to in some ways figure out a process for decolonization and reconciliation in the agricultural sector. Um, to to impart rediscover a lot of that knowledge and enable that knowledge to be disseminated across the agricultural community. Um, I mean, I think I think the the most important part is just to to recognize that you know a lot of these regenerative agriculture principles and concepts that we're talking about today they weren't just invented by a bunch of white people. The that's largely who you know we are centering in this regenerative ag movement, and I think it's encouraging now that we, we see more black indigenous and people of color, um, you know, land managers, uh, I think it's important that we center their voices more strongly in this movement. Um, so I, I think that's really the, the main point that, that I wanted to iterate here. I always like to bring this back to the people listening. Um, I know it's clear that there are pressures from the actual production side, whether that be through conversations with companies like like General Mills, who are working with partners on the ground, who are producing the raw materials for the products uh, that you sell. But there are also pressures from the consumer side. And if people want to consume in a more uh, sustainable manner, 
what kind of thing should they be looking for? How, how do they know? Maybe you can give an example uh, on the back of some General Mills products. Yeah. So I think, you know, looking for products that are, you know, are, are sourced with people and planet in mind is, is really important. And so, you know, these are some of the things that we've started to do. Um, you know, Epic is about to come out with a product with the savory land to market uh, seal that certifies that it's been, you know, the, these farmers and ran- these ranchers are, are really monitoring the ecological outcomes on their farms to, to, to see that, you know, these things are actually regenerating, that the land, the biodiversity, it's actually getting better. Um, and that, you know, the farmers and ranchers have a keen eye and are working towards that. I think things like that um, can help a, can help consumers see which products are, are grown with this, you know, these concepts in mind. Um, and it's, it's stuff we have to do more of. It's, it's hard to certify that outcomes, you know, these outcomes, most certifications in the past have been done, you know, looking at practices and saying, you know, this product doesn't have this, this is this, but it can't necessarily say exactly what has occurred as far as these outcomes and are they regenerating? And so that's one encouraging thing about the land to market program is, is it is focused on these outcomes. Um, and that's one thing, you know, general mills, as a whole is really working towards it is how do we, how do we bring these outcomes to life for consumers that they can see, you know, when they purchase a product that it's actually going to regenerating this ecosystem or, and this community as well, you know, I have to bring people back into the mix um, because economics is, is such a critical part of, of sustainability as well. Um, and so it's something I think, you know, the industry is working towards and we can do more of, but um you know, there's, there's some examples out there as well. Um, you know, also, you know, for consumers or, you know, just people that are out there interested in this stuff, um, you know, finding and connecting with local farmers as well is, is a great place to start. Um, or even implementing the regenerative principles yourself. You know, if you have a, a garden or a lawn, you know, think about how you can increase the diversity of plants or even integrate some livestock get some chickens or something, if you can. Um, think about how much tillage you do maybe in your garden and, and how you could switch to no-till. Um, think about planting a cover crop in the fall after you harvest tomatoes. Um, you know, put a diverse mix of plants out there that can suppress your weeds for you um, instead of having to till uh, or spraying That's something. what I do because I hate weeding. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, some of these things, right, it's just like can save you time and it's it's actually using nature to, to your advantage. Um, so, you know, I think getting your hands dirty is, is a great place to start if you, if you're able. Um, so yeah, those are just some ideas. Steven, thank you very much for the, the education on regenerative ag- agriculture today. I think there'll be a lot of people who are, are wiser for your, your time and your input. So thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to maybe picking this up with you again, when we can, we can dig into certain topics in more detail. Yeah. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. 